and welcome to the Creative Soul Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Van Doren, and in this podcast, I talk with some of the most creative and inspiring people that I know. From hearing about their process to what holds them back from creating, routines and rituals, to the intersection between creativity and spirituality, you'll hear from writers, actors, singers, dancers, musicians, painters, multi-passionate creatives, and anyone else who considers themselves a creative soul. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Creative Soul Podcast. So happy to have you here. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. This podcast is all about the intersection of creativity and spirituality, and I have conversations with my amazing guests, and today is no exception. Today's guest is Oliver Butler. A little bit about Oliver. He is a theater director based in Queens, New York. He recently directed the critically acclaimed Broadway premiere of Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me, which was nominated for a Best Play Tony Award, was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, and the film version can now be seen on Amazon Prime, so definitely go check that out. It's amazing. I saw it off-Broadway and it blew my mind. I loved it so much. Uh, he also has worked with Will Eno at the Yale Repertory Theater. He has worked at the Signature Theater Company, Geffen Playhouse, and is the co-founder and co-artistic director of the Debate Society, with whom he has directed 10 premieres in 15 years, including plays titled The Light Years, Jacuzzi, and Blood Play. He is also a Sundance Institute Fellow and a Bill Fuller Fellow. Oliver is someone that I wanted to interview for a while. We connected through the National Theatre Institute uh, where he does workshops and teaches students on directing and takes people through the process that he's developed with the Debate Society on how to make new work and how to devise new theatre and how to collaborate creatively. And so in this episode, we talk a little bit about the Debate Society and how their creative process works and in really accessing those intuitive ideas. And we also talk a lot about a recent journey that he went on. He hiked the Appalachian Trail for 30 days by himself. And so wanted to bring him on the podcast and talk a little bit more about that journey, what he learned from it, and how hiking mirrors the creative process and how hiking could be used as a creative practice to stir his creative self and access his intuitive ideas. So I think you'll love this episode. You'll get a lot out of it. I know I did. And just so grateful and excited to introduce Oliver to you. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with Oliver Butler. Hello, Oliver. Welcome to the Creative Soul Podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, so glad to have this conversation with you today. And the first question I ask everyone when they come on is, what is currently fueling your creative soul? So it'll probably connect to other stuff that we're going to talk about, but I've been doing a lot of hiking and walking lately. Mm. I just did a month-long hike on the Appalachian Trail, and I'd been training for that for six months. And I have, I've always known that walking has been important to my creative process, but even today and yesterday, I decided to walk sort of a two-hour walk versus what could be like a, you know, a 20-minute car trip because it gets me in the right headspace and sort of makes me sort of focused and creative in a satisfying way. Mm, yeah. I want to kind of talk about your trip and like, what was the impetus to do the trip? What made you want to do it? Like, tell us all, all about that. Yeah. I think 
uh, a lot of different things added up to deciding to do a month on the Appalachian Trail. So the first was, so my mother passed away from Alzheimer's about a year and a half ago. So in the very end of 2019, luckily actually before COVID happened, because it would have gotten very frustrating and uncomfortable, I think, for her and for me and for everyone, if her last days had been during COVID. So she had passed away and I knew that in the spring, I wanted to do a series of trips to sort of as a part of like intentional mourning. I was planning on traveling to visit a friend in a uh, few friends in Palestine and in Israel. And we were going to do some hiking there. And then after that, I was going to go to Portugal and do sort of a walk hike there. And of course, all of that got canceled because of COVID. In the first couple of months of COVID, I bought a Nintendo Switch and I played uh, Breath of the Wild, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which Zelda, the original Zelda, was actually the first game that my mother bought for me, which I played like crazy. It's like an adventure game. Do you know Breath of the Wild? No, not at all. <laughs> oh my God. It is, I think, the greatest game ever created. It's an open world game where you explore this incredible, I mean, there's fighting and there's sort of puzzle solving, but you're sort of exploring this outdoor world. You're climbing mountains, you're flying. It's, it's a really, really beautiful thing. But I spent like two months playing that game, a lot of hours. And I feel like that was a part of my experience of sort of trying to access this like outside world, even though we were locked up because of COVID. And so I did that. That was like a little bit of my experience. And then over the summer, my friend Dominic D'Andrea reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to do some hiking upstate? So I did my first travel outside of the house. I put on, you know, two masks and I would take a very empty MTA train upstate and we would go on like, you know, eight hour hikes all summer long. Mm. Then the fall hit, he actually had to take some time off. And I completely, I just started searching because I had remembered my mother and I had hiked on the Appalachian Trail when I was little up in the White Mountains. And so I started thinking about that and I started looking at videos. There's like a whole bunch of sort of YouTube videos about people who travel and do vlogging on the Appalachian Trail. So I started watching those and I was completely like radicalized online. Mm. Mm. Got super excited by the idea of doing like a long hike, which I'd, I'd never done before. I'd always wanted to, I'd never done it. And so in the fall, I started, I started training for it by doing a lot of city hikes, like long walks in the city. I got my gear together. And then I went on sort of a practice hike with this guy who has done the entire trail and is a professional guide. So I did sort of like a safety prep hike as a well way to get ready. So the whole process actually Oh, and the other thing I should say is that, so we, we are connected through National Theater Institute. My friend and colleague Malik Work, he teaches a class called The Artist's Way, which is he guides students through this like 12-week artist rehabilitation course. And he had told me about the book. I bought the book and I hadn't cracked it until he asked me if I wanted to be a part of his fall class. So simultaneously, while I was like getting into the idea of hiking, mm. I was doing summer hiking, I got into this artist's sort of rehabilitation class. And it was during that class, the writing I was doing during that class, 
that the idea of taking on sort of a big adventure came to me. So mm. all those things sort of came together to this sort of, you know, a big, important goal for myself. Ooh, yeah. There's so many things in that of like, first of all, just like hearing about the amount of preparation that it took. And I read the book Wild by Cheryl Strayed. And it's like, she just went on this hike and didn't have any preparation, which she was like, I don't recommend to anyone. But it's interesting too, like that. I love also the connection of the artist's way and like how that kind of informed the process of it. And so I wonder for you, like, because you've been an artist and a creative your entire life and like, what was it about this year? Was it in, you know, the passing of your mother? Like, what was it about this year that like you suddenly came to the artist way and felt like you needed to like go on this adventure? First, I'll sort of just address, you were talking about preparation because I did do, you know, there was a lot of preparation. Like I wanted to get ready physically and emotionally and like feel like I knew what to do out there. However, there's a lot of people who do that trail, they'll tell you, and I also learned this as well, that there is no preparation except for doing it. So you really, like the things I learned in the first like three days on the trail was like, you know, it's just stuff that you can't know about yourself until you're out there. And there are people who just pick up and go. One of the second person to do the entire trail was a 65 year old woman named called Grandma Gatewood. And uh, she's got a very incredible story. I mean, she did it, I think it was in the 50s or 60s or something like that. I mean, she's got a, you know, warning. Her personal story includes a lot of, you know, there's a lot of violence and abuse in her life story. However, the story of this 65-year-old woman with a pair of white Keds and a shower curtain and a duffel bag and the fact that she became the first woman to do the whole trail and the first person to do it twice is proof that actually these big, hard things, it's more about mentally deciding that you are gonna continue than it is about like having everything perfect. So like the artist connection to that is that I like preparing things. However, I sort of think that, you know, the best way to approach making any sort of artistic progress or any progress in your life is to actually just start doing stuff. That it's more about taking the steps than it is about sort of getting everything perfect. And, and so that I think, you know, then threads to your question about like, why now? I mean, I think COVID ended up being, you know, I, I love making theater. I also, you know, you feel sort of trapped by theater, you know, like we were all sort of like going through the motions of sort of like doing this thing and you can't stop because you, you just, you won't stop because if you stop, maybe you won't get the opportunity again. You know, it's all this like scarcity mentality in the theater that breeds a lot of sort of like toxic, you know, toxic behavior and just both self-directed and at other people. And I think that it, the being forced to stop allowed me to say like, well, how do I want to move forward? And this felt like a very sort of like practical, physical thing that I could do that would get me, you know, get me moving in the right direction. And the artist's way as a process, two of like the really important sort of techniques in the artist's way, one is the morning pages, which is the idea that you write three pages every morning, just as a part of your practice, that you don't worry about the quality of it or what you're writing, you just write three pages. And the other thing is the artist's date, which is that once a week, 
you plan a special, you know, couple hours where you go and do something that is specifically to reward and enrich your inner artist. So I feel like the combination of all those things made me think that like, well, part of the, even though I did a lot of preparation, that really it is just about like grabbing the bag, getting what you think you need and getting out there. And once you're out there, you do sort of learn everything that you need to know to do it. Yeah, I think that's such a good like life lesson that you can apply to any area of life of like, sometimes you just have to take action. And no matter how much you think and prep and prepare, then, you know, you're not going to really learn until you're like, actually doing it. And so curious for you, like, you know, what were those like, really hard moments on the trail? And like, how, how did you push past them. And I know you've talked about maybe a little bit on Facebook about like how meditative it was. And I imagine like being alone on the woods. And so will you talk a little bit more about like on the trail, were you alone? How many hours a day were you walking? And like, what, what was the, like the day-to-day process of that? And like, what was going on in your mind? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start, I'll talk about like the hardness and how you approach hardness. There were a lot of learnings that sort of came from being out on the trail. One of the first ones sort of came in the first day. One of the sort of big learnings was, so the first thing that you hit up against is the physical, the physical nature of it. I did a lot of preparation, but by one o'clock on the first day, I had hiked 12 miles and my legs were starting to cramp up, which has happened on a lot of my training hikes as well, where the first day my legs just, they start doing this cramping thing that makes it sort of hard to walk. Like you can't push through it. It is like they start seizing up. I had hoped to do 18 miles that day. That was like my stretch goal was like hike 18 miles. And so when I stopped at one, I felt there was this like sense of disappointment Mm. Um, but also what I realized was that like setting this stretch goal that I had, even if I, that I had expected to hit in a certain time frame, was the only thing making me feel disappointed about it. And that the learning that I was getting from that was that I should decide to move on when I'm at like the first stop, like that it's always an ongoing conversation with myself to sort of allow myself to opt in to the next part of the adventure. It doesn't mean that you can't have like goals, but it's a different shift in your mind from here's what I'm going to do today and then doing it. And then if you don't, you're a failure. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, I'm going to check in with myself at any every point and decide whether I'm going to continue. So deciding at lunch always, am I going to continue on? How much further do I want to go? And then doing that, it forced me to have an ongoing dialogue with myself, which I thought was was a really, I don't know, smart way to approach the really hard stuff. After the physical, the physical stuff gets a lot easier after the first few days. And then after the first few weeks, you feel your body get better where you're not, it's not like your legs are struggling to carry the weight it actually becomes more of a mental exercise. There's only so fast you can walk with a bag around max just over three miles an hour for me. So then it just becomes about how long you can stay walking at that speed. So it's not about rushing. It's really about like, I would walk for between 10 and 12 hours a day. And that has its own like psychological effect. Just like 
there's it's hiking is actually can be very boring you know <laughs> like it's just like you think it's this you know you can't be in a state of epiphany the entire time you're not just walking through the woods the whole time going this is amazing oh i feel so free no you're like it's one o'clock and i'm gonna hike for another six hours so like, <laughs> you know so a lot yeah. of it is mentally dealing with the fact that actually to do big miles if that's what you want to do you just have to walk a lot mm. um, and that has some physical you know your ankles start hurting your feet start hurting sometimes your legs start hurting but at a certain point it almost felt like my legs were separate from my body and I was like I can just I can just keep walking actually this is more about me being sort of like mentally, can I stay sort of mentally engaged in this? And it can get frustrating. There were days where, you know, I was like hiking through um, the rain the entire time. The whole day was wet, the very beginning of the day, the whole day, and you're getting cold and you're getting wet. It's uncomfortable. And those are the days where I just tried to be honest with myself and saying things like not, you know, so there's one version of myself that could be like, come on, be tough, you know, stop being such a wuss, like get, you know, come on, you know, like, but the thing is, I don't want to hike with a person like that, you know? So even just someone saying, me saying to myself, hey, this is hard and it sucks, but, you know, we're going to keep going, you know, that is just like learning to be a better, like, person to yourself ended up being sort of one of the, actually the big realization, the two, the first realization was I can trust myself, which I said mm. to myself on that first day, I was like, oh, I trust myself. I can trust myself. I have my best interest in mind. I'm not trying to like, you know, mess with myself. I'm not trying to hurt myself. I'm trying to help myself. I like, and then the follow-up was I like myself. Mm. I'm a good hiking partner to me. Mm. I like being around myself. I'm a pretty extroverted person. So I like people. So I'd be alone. You know, I wouldn't see another person for three days. And weirdly, I never felt lonely. I was very alone. Mm. I never felt lonely. It was like a lot of solitude. And actually, I really liked, I liked who I was to myself on the trail. Uh, that's so, those are such beautiful realizations. And I love, I feel like the lessons that you're, you know, describing here is kind of like, I see it so mirrored in the creative process itself of like, you know, instead of setting up these unrealistic goals, it's like, how do we work with ourselves? And also like when, when things get boring and when things get hard, it's like, yeah, how do you like deal with those, the, mon the mundane and like, how do you, you know, continue to find the beauty in the mundane? And so I wonder for you, like, how does this translate or, or how can you see it translating to your creative process? If, if at all? Yeah. I mean, I think in pretty important ways, this will connect a little bit to some of these are realizations that I, I got like in working with Malik. So I'll sort of thread some of that into this. One big realization that has come out of this is that I think we've, we approach somehow the story that artists are supposed to like wait for inspiration and then create when they're inspired is I think a false narrative, or at least it doesn't work for me. It ends up getting in the way. Cause if, if I get into this situation where I'm like waiting to be inspired, I'll sort of wait forever. There's sort of no perfect inspiration. It's never actually like 
things show up as like fully formed moments and then you got to sit down and grind it out and it's all brilliant. What I've learned is that you actually have to start moving forward and then the inspiration comes. Mm. So the idea of like taking step and the path, you know, the, the hiking is like a, it's a good metaphor for it all, but it's like, you know, the direction you got to go, right? There's a path you're following. You've either decided the path or you're going to decide the path as you go, but you're going to start walking. And it's actually in the process of having taken those steps that the ideas start coming to you, that the meaning starts coming to you. So mm. for me, and that also connects to artist's way where it's like three pages a day, I'll take care of the qua- the quantity, you take care of the quality. Mm. Sort of like, you know, I'm just going to create. And instead of activating like the judgment of, am I inspired, right? Then I'll write. Instead, it's like, no, I'm going to write and then let that process of doing that sort of open up inspiration for me. I don't have a quote exactly, but the thing I think of a lot, one of my favorite uh, movies is uh, Three Kings. It's like set during the Iraq war with George Clooney and a bunch of other incredible Mark Wahlberg. There's a character in it, I think played by Spike Jones, the director, I think it's Spike Jones, but he's acting in it. And they're about to like do this like pretty sort of scary, you know, life and death sort of mission. And the Spike Jones character says he's, he's, you know, scared. And the Clooney character says, I don't remember exactly how the setup goes, but he says the way courage works is you get it after you do the thing you have to do, not before. And the Spike Jones character is like, well, that's, that's backwards. Shouldn't it be the other (laughs) way around? And he's like, yeah, it should, but that's how it works. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that as well. When I think about the creative process and actually the amount of doubt that comes, the fear that comes, you know, sometimes our imagination gets wrapped up in all the like terrible ways in which it could go. And for me, it's like understanding that actually I'm not waiting for someone else or, you know, some other power or whatever, or some outside force to tell me when to create. Mm -hmm. Just like I'm not waiting for some outside force to tell me like, when to walk or what like trip to take, I go start walking and then the adventure, you know, presents itself to me. Mm, Yeah. I, I love that. And it's funny that you say that because I pulled, uh, you had an interview with Playbill at some point and I pulled a quote that you said, let the play reveal itself to you. And I feel like that totally encompasses everything you're saying of like, you just start And, you know, you're going to learn stuff along the way. And so will you talk a little bit about your work with Debate Society and what the Debate Society is and how, because I think Debate Society is so unique because it feels like you guys have like created this specific process that's so based off your intuition and so based off like the creative process itself instead of product oriented or like results based. And so will you talk a little bit about like what that process is and and, and what you all do. Yeah. And you could draw a pretty, a connected line. I want to say a straight line, but it's like, I'm sure it's not actually a straight line between the work with the debate society and some of these ideas. Totally. So the debate society is an ensemble based theater company, technically based in Brooklyn, New York. 
although I now live in Queens and Hannah and Paul both still live in Brooklyn. And uh, we produce most of our plays in Manhattan every once in a while in Brooklyn. So we're sort of all over the place. But we've been making plays since 2004. We made nine, we produced nine full length plays. And we have used a sort of more collaborative sort of ensemble process. Hannah, Boss, and Paul Thoreen are playwrights. I'm a director who mm. develops plays with them. But when we start working on the plays, we sort of, the three of us end up sort of conjuring what the world of the play would be. And our goal isn't so much to sort of identify what the final play is and then sort of fill in the gaps. We have a series of processes that involve us accessing our intuitive ideas or even tricking ourselves to access our intuitive ideas and sort of almost like reveal the play over time. It's sort of like a set of values versus a method. We say it's like a set of values for creation versus like, this is how we think everyone should create plays. So when we come and we teach it and actually teaching it at National Theater Institute was a process of us figuring out how it actually works. It's part of how it sort of revealed to me what we were doing and allowed me to sort of like apply it to other processes outside of the debate society. But it does have to do, it is sort of like an outlook. You know, I don't even know, I know it's very different. Everyone's got a different way of making work and living their lives, but it, and it does not mean that the product doesn't matter, that the final thing doesn't matter. Like we have extremely, I think, rigorous, like dramaturgical standards. And we ask ourselves real questions about like audience experience and like the story that we're telling and how we're telling the story. Like, you know, we have, we still ask all the hard questions. However, I think that we open up a wider opportunity for maybe for like the possibility that either an idea that we're feeling has not fully evolved into the great idea it will be, or that the play itself isn't yet ready to accept a great idea. Like if you look at the play development process as something that exists in layers and through time, you know, and it's like each of us are one of the layers of the play, you know, but we exist in a transformative way through time. And then our ideas are also this layer in the process and that exists through time. And so sometimes, you know, an early idea might seem terrible, but that's because we haven't actually gotten to the point that it makes sense. Mm. You know, so like, if you think of like time travel, you know, time travel movies, right? It's like, we're all actually like traveling through this creative process. And like, mm. if I decide here, you know, in like, you know, 1985 in our time travel, if I decide in 1985 that the idea of a cellular telephone is a dumb idea that's never going to, you know, you know, no one's ever going to believe, but the play doesn't get produced until 2007, mm -hmm. then all I've done is thrown out a great idea that just didn't have time to, for the context to catch up with it. So that's like a very like that we don't actually have any plays with cell phones in them yet. <laughs> um, but it's just an example of like when you look at the holistic view of the process, 
it opens up the opportunity that your intuitive ideas may actually be sort of pulling something brilliant from the future. And so you create ways to sort of protect those ideas by, as what we say is like opening up the idea of maybe. Mm. I think the other sort of like related, or maybe even just another way of saying it, is that we approach the making of our plays with this idea that the longer you don't know the answer to something, the more rich the final product can be. That doesn't mean that you never know the answer or that sometimes you have to know the answer, right? It's not an excuse to not make progress. You have to be taking the steps. You have to be walking the path, right? And you have to still be rigorously, dramaturgically, sometimes even judgmental of your or your collaborator's work. You've got to be honest with each other. But it just sort of gives you a sense of how if you open up space for not knowing the answer in an active way, not like I don't know and I don't care, but like, I don't know yet. It's mm -hmm. like acknowledging that we're time traveling through a process and that just because it hasn't, you know, become clear doesn't mean that it isn't possibly like a critical and important idea. And I think that that just as like a set of values to live your life by, feels sort of like it's generous and holistic, you know, you get to place yourself as a work of, you know, as a work in progress in a larger cosmic work. I think some people use, you know, religion or spirituality to access these ideas. I'm an atheist who prays because that's how I was like raised, but mm. I'm still an atheist who also doesn't necessarily, you know, think he knows everything about how the universe works. I leave open the possibility for even the things I don't believe. Mm. Um, and I just prefer to live in a world that includes that sort of like holistic view. And I try and apply that to my artistic work and to just like me as a person. Mm, that's, yeah, so beautifully said. And just the way that you said that of like, Right. People can find that in religion. People can find that in spirituality. People can find that in an artistic or creative practice. You like it's it's the way that you're living your life in this idea of like being open to the unknown and possibility. And instead of it being like this terrifying thing, but like being curious and allowing it to grow and unfold as it's meant to, which I just think is a beautiful way to approach the creative process. And I feel like I, I don't hear a lot of people like talking about it in those terms, even though like in my own process, that's, those are the kind of same conclusions that I've come to, but, and I, and I wonder what's this like other way that it feels like people maybe approach art of like, and maybe that's, you know, more focused on like producing or money and like the capitalistic structures that we live in. But I wonder like, have you experienced art or art making this other way around of like approaching it from a process or not a process, a products results oriented practice. And like, does it still work within that same framework or, or not? I usually pretty early on, I can tell if potential collaborators or producers like don't, don't see art that way. It doesn't mean that you can't work with those people, but it ends up being, if you can't get them on board with this kind of outlook, it ends up being, you end up having to spend a lot of time defending mm. uh, those lesser ideas 
because they feel right, you can't necessarily dramaturgically defend them. Oh, and, and, and to be fair, like there are brilliant artistic and theatrical minds out there who's, you know, who don't see the world in these ways or have learned, you know, a lot of these are like techniques for protecting themselves or their institutions by controlling the artistic process or thinking that they can control the artistic process. It can just be very frustrating. You know, I have come up against, I'm not always right too. I mean, I'm sure there are people who don't <laughs> like working with me or where I've gotten defensive about something or frustrated and not been a great collaborator. Like I'm not perfect. However, I can usually recognize when I come up against the stress of someone who doesn't feel comfortable living in that unknown. Hmm. Um, and so I sometimes, you know, have to sort of cut certain people out of a process, be very sort of intentional about how much I open up the unknown sort of maybe process to some people, because some people will just not ask the questions that are going to be useful, or they will leave with a certain amount of stress that then you have to, again, spend all this energy defending something that isn't even necessarily right. It's just Again, from a values perspective, you're saying we need to leave open the possibility of this. You know, I have, when I go in and I start working with a writer or, or a collaborative group, you know, sometimes there are other people involved, like let's say, you know, a producer or an artistic director who has an idea of the kind of show they think they want to produce. And I am usually trying to make sure that especially if the artist has not locked into like what that thing is going to be, that there's at least room for them to stumble into something like truly like, you know, unimagined. Mm. Um, and so I will end up just spending, it feels like a lot of time sort of protecting that unknown space. And that can lead to when there's one person who wants like real clarity or one specific thing, you know, and I'm saying it could be these other amazing things that can be sort of frustrating to someone who finds, you know, I don't know, safety in the knowingness, you yeah. know, this is sort of a, I don't know if this story will exactly capture what I'm talking about, but just to use like another sort of analog and analogous sort of story. My father talks about, I think Samsung, did you know that Samsung was originally, I might, I hope I'm right about this. If I'm not, <laughs> people will, but was originally a soy sauce company. Oh, huh. <laughs> um, yeah. And the thing is, as a soy sauce company, they became, they became especially skilled at working with copper because the, they made the soy sauce in these copper kettles. And wow. So they eventually, again, I don't know all the details, but eventually used their, you know, their skills with copper to then start making copper wiring. But it was because they knew, you know, all of this experience from making their own kettles for making the soy sauce. So I sometimes just think about that. I think my, my father told me that story. I hope it's true, even if it's not. <laughs> but just that idea too, yeah. yeah. The path there, it sort of says, you know, and not that they shouldn't have been a soy sauce company for as long as they were. I don't know. Again, no details <laughs> in this story. But how could you even conceive of like 
you know, what you would become based on the skills you have, based on technology that doesn't even exist yet. And for me, holding open the possibility that, you know, really what we're looking at is like a global electronics company while we're sitting there mixing up soy sauce is, I mean, it's, it's beautiful that you can sort of transform in those ways. And so that's the kind of, I just sort of love, that feels like how progress and evolution and sort of creative, the really mind-blowing creative stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes back to the idea of like what you were talking about, that in order to figure stuff out, you just have to take the steps. You have to take the action. Samsung maybe, you know, didn't know that they were going to become a cell phone company, but they started with one idea and it evolved into something else. And so I love that that's kind of mirrored there too. And so going back a little bit to like you now today post this trip and, you know, now we're moving into maybe theater will hopefully reopen now that people are getting vaccinated and everything. And so we're like moving into a next phase of the unknown. And so like, how are you feeling now after your trip? And like, what, what kind of things do you want to take with you as we now re-enter back into the industry and all of those things? Yeah. I, um, so I guess I sort of thought when I went on this hike that I would like come back changed, like that mm. the way change happens is you like go have this experience and you come back and you're a whole new person. I'm not a whole new person. However, I do have all of these things that I have this instinct. I want to sort of thread them and weave them into my life for the future. And I guess, you know, I have learned over time that the sort of maybe some people have these life changing epiphany moments where every, everything is different. But I always, I have like a hangover of my previous self too. And that previous mm. self wasn't necessarily wrong, you know? So it's almost like I'm not trying to, you know, get rid of who I was. So I am in this process of trying to sort of thread the things I've learned into who I'm going to be in the future. I'm sure I will continue making plays. I mean, Debate Society, you know, we have, we have a play we've made that we're, you know, talking about producing when we're done. Constitution is mm. going to come back you know, maybe as early as like, you know, very late in the year, you know, I will have projects, you know, I'm working with this, I'm working with this writer named Kevin Powell, who's a writer and an activist. I'm working with this guy named Bassem Youssef, who is an Egyptian, now American comedian on a new piece. So I've got all these things in the works. I'm sure I'll be making plays. However, I like, I don't know that I want theater to be the only thing in my life. And maybe some of that is hiking. Maybe some of that is adventure storytelling. I'm like, you know, I'm 43. And so I like to say that I'm going through like a moderated sort of strategic midlife crisis <laughs> where I'm really, and, the, and COVID has made it so that like now that theater has been artificially and, into, and uh, sort of uh, removed from my life. Now I have this opportunity to say like, well, what do I really want to be doing? You know, yeah. and I love teaching at NTI. I love making, you know, specific plays and under certain circumstances, I find it really like satisfying. I love the collaborative nature of it, but mm -hmm. I also feel this sort of pull to do other stuff. And I'm trying to manifest that for whatever this next phase of my life is going to be. Mm, I love hearing that of just like just reevaluating and like, again, listening to that intuition of like, what, what is calling to you and trusting that like, yeah, you'll probably, I mean, I'm sure you'll never leave theater behind 
like at all, but kind of like widening the scope of what, what is possible. And so one of the last questions we'll get into is I love sharing creative resources with people. And so you've already mentioned a couple things like the artist's way and this Zelda game that now I have to check out, Breath but what are, wild. okay, there we go. Breath of the wild. But what are some other things that like are inspiring you right now? Maybe books, podcasts, um, anything that you want to share? Hmm. Books. I am reading Joe Sacco's S-A-C-C-O Footnotes in Gaza. It's a, it is a graphic novel about history of Palestine. Mm. Um, and I'm also reading Joe Sacco's it's called Paying the Land. It's another, it's another graphic novel about the Native American experience in America. Really, really cool. I'm just sort of, I like, I like graphic novels. I have not been reading enough of them lately. So definitely getting into that. Yeah. Other, other things that fill me up. I have been really interested. I sort of bring this up a lot. I don't know if I consider this like, I guess I consider it an inspiration. During the the George Floyd protest last year, I became acquainted with my local mutual aid groups, mm. which were, they were hosting and planning protests in my local community. There's a group called the Queens Liberation Project, and they also collaborate with a group called the People's Bodega. And they, you know, they do clothing drives, they take resources and redirect them in the community, they organize protests. But it got me really interested in the idea of mutual aid, and I'm sort of fascinated by it. I'm not doing a whole lot of, I've talked to them about potentially doing some sort of a collaborative project with them to sort of promote the work that they're doing. But uh, it's just, especially being out on the trail, on the trail, there's a thing called trail magic, which Mm -hmm. is like people, they leave like coolers full of food out for hikers. Like there's a lot of, it's one of those things that, you know, people think of hikers and they think like, like this is a a noble thing to be doing. But Mm -hmm. like, you know, when you look at, you know, homeless people are people in need in New York, they're sort of like, there is this idea of like punishing the poor and everything that, I mean, this has existed for a long time, but I have been interested in the idea of mutual aid groups because I feel like they are doing, you know, for my actual local community, what people were voluntarily doing for hikers because of like the the nobility of the hiker or something, you know? So that whole idea and mutual aid has been really interesting to me. And I'm sort of, I'm hoping that that manifests into something practically helpful for my community. I don't know what that is. I'm still in sort of the maybe on that. Oh, that's so cool. And just like, yeah, the different perceptions that we have of like, right, a hiker who is essentially sleeping outside versus a homeless person. And the reminder too of like, and I think this is something that COVID has kind of really shown me and I'm sure many others too about like our local communities and maybe how disconnected we were from our local communities previously. And and I just, I just hope that like going forward that that's really at the forefront. And I guess it's, it's up to the individual to really make that a collaborative effort, but yeah, just yeah that, want- uh, I, I watch a lot of TikTok videos, which I really enjoy TikTok by the way, but there's a, I love that. <laughs> there is a, one of the videos going around or sort of the seed videos is, you know, what's something that's cool if you're rich and not cool if you're uh, poor. And I think mm. hiking or being homeless was one of them. You know, they were, they were talking about, you know, there's all these like influencers who are like, it's cool. Cause they're like living in RVs and living in their car, you know, it's like cool, you know, and I, I have been acknowledging that I'm like a part of that, you know, mm. I'm like the privilege of, I'm going to go away for a month and live in the woods and like 
you know, the privilege of that, but then also just questioning, like, what is, why, other than just like, you know, classism, you know, classism and racism, you know, what is the, what is the difference in people's minds? And maybe is there some way to open up the conversation, maybe through these mutual aid groups and try and reform how we look at, you know, homeless people, for instance. Totally. And lastly, just because I'm super curious, what do you love about TikTok? I love that. I I think you already kind of pointed some things out there. But yeah, curious to hear your take on it. I think, I mean, I'm sure it will grow tiresome like everything else does. But I feel like really, really fun storytelling is happening there. There seems Mm. to be, you know, for whatever reason, more so than on like Instagram and definitely Facebook. I never got into Snapchat, so I can't compare it there. But people are like really into sort of telling innovative short stories. And there seems to be a lot of joy and fun. And there's also a lot of the sort of meaning of things. The fact that like, you know, people can take a format that someone creates and then repeat it. It sort Mm -hmm. of ends up being this like sort of, it teaches people how to tell sort of innovative stories, which I enjoy. And I also think it's a good, it's good for showing processes. So people like, you know, I love like, is it horse farriers? There's like the, the people who do horseshoes. Oh, like, okay. Watch like over and over again, all these like videos. I mean, I'm never going to change a, a horse's shoe. <laughs> but I've learned so much about the entire process of how mm. that happens. And so I feel like, you know, that's why I like food and cooking and hacks. And I feel like there's all this sort of like helpful education happening there that I just find like super I find really, really interesting. I feel like I learn a lot about comedy and even just like video editing, you know, when people are doing these like weird edits where they're like slamming into the camera and they're in different clothes and sort of that you are forced to be like, how did they do that? That's pretty cool. Yeah, I love like, I just love the way that your mind works and that like you can identify these things because I feel like I rejected TikTok for a while, but then I realized I'm interested in herbalism, just like, wanted to and I and I was like trying to find resources online but couldn't really find anything then I was like why don't I just look on TikTok and then I searched the hashtag herbalism and it was like now I know how to make all these different kind of concoctions because they show you in 30 seconds how to do it and yeah I was like kind of shifting your mindset of like using it as this like educational mindful tool rather than like something else to distract us and numb us. So that's really cool. I do have this, like, it might be a unique take on the, I I know that we all have to sort of hate the internet and social media companies because they have, you know, they have taken our creativity and narcissism and need, emotional need, and they have weaponized it slash turned it into you know, just sort of profits for their shareholders without compensating the creators. Mm-hmm. Also, though, I, in addition to that, if you take out the sort of evil company, it is also this reflection of our need and interest in being together and in being seen and then sharing our creativity. So I just, I also try and hold open as terrible as they are. There is also this layer of, of like our you know, humanity that comes through, but I find touching. And so I try and keep that in mind, even though I think it is probably also a net terrible part of our lives, but I'm trying to take some of the good along with the massive amount of bad. 
Yeah. And it feels like that's kind of our resistance to it about like us being us choosing how to use it instead of it, it feeling like they're like using us. So it's yeah. like, we, we take that power back, but yeah. just want to say thank you so much for this conversation. And lastly, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? I would say you can go to the debatesociety.org to at least learn about like my theatrical work. And I would say I post most of what I'm doing on Instagram. So at Oliver Butler, or I think on, I think on TikTok, I'm Oliver Butler zero. So that's probably where you're going to see the most, I would say on Instagram, that's where you're going to get the most up-to-date stuff that I'm working on. Perfect. Well, I'll put all those in the show notes and just want to say thank you again. I admire you so much as a theater maker and as a human. Thanks. It means a lot. Thanks for inviting me to do this. I hope you enjoyed that episode and thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please feel free to share it with a friend and tell them what inspired you. Or if you'd be so kind, you can rate and review the podcast. And when you do, I would love to gift you my free guided writing meditation that will connect you to your creativity, yourself, and your spirituality. Just go on over to my Instagram at Leah Van Doren. That's L-E-Y-A-V-A-N-D-O-R-E-N and send me a screenshot of your review and I will send over the meditation and I would love to hear your thoughts. Stay inspired, stay creative, and keep shining your creative soul.